Today's episode is proudly sponsored by the Rising Tide Mastermind. The term mastermind was originally written in Napoleon Hill's book, Think and Grow Rich. Before that, the earliest documentation that we have of a mastermind group was Ben Franklin's group that he used to meet every single week in a tavern that he called Huntus. Nation, there's no doubt about it. Life is too short to do it alone, and it's not very much fun to do it alone in. Nation, I urge you to go to scalinguph2o.com and find out if the Rising Tide Mastermind is right for you. I'd love to have a 15-minute call with you to explain all things Rising Tide Mastermind and see if this is a group that's right for you and you are right for the group. Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind. Hello, Scale It Up Nation. Trace Blackmore here, your host for the Scaling Up H2O podcast, the podcast where we scale up on knowledge so we don't scale up your systems. And today's topic, we're going to be talking about one of the ingredients that create scale in your systems. But before we get there, who can believe it's the last month of the year? I think this year has just flown by, and it's my hope that you have been tracking all of your goals throughout the year, and hopefully you just have one-twelfth of your goals left for the month of December. Now, that being said, December is normally the most productive month because people are trying to get everything they should have been doing done within the month of December because there's no year left after December. So each and every year, I always see sales numbers increase in the month of December. And that has been across the board in every industry And there you go. So hopefully you have a great sales month this month. And it's my hope that maybe you can continue that trend through next year and make sure you're taking advantage of each and every month to achieve your goals because you've got 12 months to do them. And take it from me, it's a lot easier to accomplish a 12-year goal each and every month than it is to do it all in one month. Well, Nation, we are going to be doing a Pinks and Blues episode today. And I get so many comments how people love our Pinks and Blues episodes. A lot of companies assign Pinks and Blues episodes to their team, and then they discuss those episodes as a team so they can learn more. So maybe this is one of those episodes. But before we get there, I've got a few things I want to make sure you get on your calendar. The first one is DeSalitics Water Week Online. This is an online conference taking place December 5th through 7th. We're going to have all of that information on our events page, along with the 2024 Wastewater Administrators Conference. This is taking place in Michigan, January 25th through 26th. This is where administrators and providers come together to interact across all things water. So we're going to have information on this on our website. By the way, that's put on by the Michigan Water Environment Association. 
And then finally, the 2024 Water Conference taking place in Austin, Texas, February 13th through 16th. This is hosted by the National Association of Clean Water Agencies. We're going to have all of these events and more on our events page. You can get there by going to scalinguph2o.com and navigating over to our events section. While you're there, check out all the resources that we have for you. It is amazing of all of the things that are curated for you right on the Scaling Up H2O webpage for you to learn more and do more within the industrial water treatment industry. Well, today's show is all about alkalinity. And if you are a longtime listener, you might be thinking, Trace, Didn't we already do a show on alkalinity? Well, thank you for listening. And yes, you are correct. That was episode 86. And that was a very, very long time ago. We are now on episode 340. And we've received a bunch of questions around alkalinity. So the fine folks here at Scaling Up H2O thought it would be a good idea to revisit that again, answering some of the questions that listeners like yourself wrote in and asked us. Now, if you want to ask a question... Don't feel like these people are getting any special treatment. You have the same ability to do what they did. How did they do it? They went to scalinguph2o.com, went over to our ideas page, and they just told us what they thought. Now, you can ask a question. You can suggest a topic. You can suggest a guest. You can do whatever you wish, and that helps us figure out what we're going to talk about on future episodes. And that's what we did. And we are talking about alkalinity. So as many of you like to hear me say, this is fresh out of the scaling up H2O mailbag. Let's go ahead and start with defining what alkalinity is. Alkalinity is a measure of the ability of a solution to neutralize acids. It's a property of water and other substances, and it's usually expressed in terms of equivalent concentration of calcium carbonate in milligrams per liter or parts per million. Alkalinity is a crucial parameter in water chemistry and is often associated with the presence of carbonate, bicarbonate, and hydroxyl ions. Now, we're going to be talking about those a little bit later. In simpler terms, alkalinity reflects the water's capacity to resist changes in pH when an acid is added. Now, we typically call this buffering. It's most likely you are running alkalinity in almost every system that you analyze. It's one of the most common tests in industrial water treatment. So you should be familiar with this test. In today's episode, we are going to go deeper into the alkalinity test, and we're going to go deeper into what I just mentioned. So let's actually look at the ions that I mentioned earlier. The first one is carbonate. And a carbon ion is what we call a polyatomic ion. That's a big fancy word by saying we have many atoms that are all put together. And that's composed of one carbon atom and three oxygen atoms. 
It has a charge of negative two. And whenever you see a negative, that's telling you what it wants to do. It wants to get rid of two electrons. And carbon ions can react with hydrogen ions to form carbonic acid, which we can further decompose into water and carbon dioxide. We've all probably heard of carbonic acid, and this is something that we try to avoid when we are treating somebody's boiler condensate lines. How do we do that? We increase the pH, and here's a spoiler alert, thereby alluding to there must be some relationship between pH and alkalinity. If we are raising the pH so we don't have carbonic acid, obviously there's some relationship there. So anyway, so that's our definition of carbonate alkalinity. Here's another one that you might have heard of. It's bicarbonate alkalinity. And bicarbonate is also a polyatomic ion, a fancy way of saying many atoms smooshed together. And that consists of one hydrogen atom, one carbon atom, and three oxygen atoms. Bicarbonate is a buffer in water systems, and that simply means that they can neutralize acid by accepting hydrogen, forming carbonic acid in water, just like we said before. And bicarbonic acids are often formed when carbon dioxide dissolves. So there we go. Two things doing very similar things, but they are different and they decompose differently in the system. So let's look at the third one, and that's our hydroxyl ions. Hydroxyl ions are formed when the water molecule loses a hydrogen. They are basic, which means they are at a high pH and can react with acidic substances. In aqueous solutions, hydroxide ions can increase the pH of a solution, and this is the preferred pH that we monitor when we are treating boilers. Now, typically, we monitor carbonate and bicarbonate when we are treating cooling systems. Now, if we were to add all of these different terms up, so we have carbonate, bicarbonate, and hydroxyl, that will get us what we call total alkalinity. But typically, we just use carbonate and bicarbonate to determine total alkalinity, specifically in cooling water. So I know that can be a little confusing. So total is everything added up, but we in the water treatment community typically just use total as an addition of carbonate and bicarbonate alkalinity. So now we know the different species of ions when we talk about alkalinity. We know what they're composed of, and we now know a little bit about what they do. But let's go ahead and bring pH into this equation. Where does pH play a role in all of this? Well, first, I think it's important that we look at pH. And pH is one of those things that everybody knows, everybody does, but they really don't truly understand it. And I had a fantastic chemistry professor, 
And she actually explained pH in a way that I modified to give you the definition that I'm getting ready to explain to you, which just allows me to send a shout out to all the wonderful teachers and professors out there that just instill a knowledge and a desire to learn more. So I hope this podcast does that for you. And I also hope that maybe you thank somebody that has helped you in your scholastic career. So let's go ahead and talk about pH. So if you will, imagine we have a scale and it starts at zero and goes all the way up to 14. And of course, what's in the middle of that? Well, seven is in the middle of that. And right above seven, we're going to mentally write H2O. And we all hear that water is neutral. And what does that mean? Well, it means that seven is considered neutral because it's right in the middle of zero and 14. But how do we use that knowledge to actually explain what pH is? So we're going to rewrite H2O as HOH. Now, if you've taken organic chemistry, this is probably how you were taught to write it because that's how water disassociates. Now, if you don't know what that means, that's just a big fancy word on how the ions come apart. So now we have H and OH. H is the hydrogen ion and OH is the hydroxyl ion. Now, if we have a pH of 7, what that's telling us is we have equal H's and OHs. Now, they might be 7 trillion Hs, but that means we have 7 trillion OHs. That's how that works. As long as we have the exact same amount, we have a pH of 7. The more hydrogens we have to OHs, the more acidic the solution is. That means the lower the pH gets. So the lower it gets, the more hydrogens. The higher it gets, the more hydroxyls and the less hydrogens we have. So right now, you've got a great understanding of the pH scale. But there's one more thing I want to throw in there. It's a logarithmic representation of the hydrogen ion. Now, we already talked about what the hydrogen ion is. That's that H that disassociates with water. And the more we have, it pushes down further to the low position. But I use that term logarithmic, and that's just saying that each one of the digits on the pH scale represents a factor of 10. So if I go from seven to six on the pH scale, that is actually 10 times more concentrated with hydrogen. If I go from seven to five, that is 100 times more concentrated. And we can go along down the row until we get to zero where the whole darn thing is just hydrogen ions. We can go up the scale as well, and now we have two ways of saying uh, as we move up, as we go from seven to eight, we have 10 times more hydroxyl ions, or we can say we have 10 times less hydrogen ions. And the reason I mention that is because if we were to look at the definition of pH, 
pH is the measure of the hydrogen ion. So that's probably the more technical way of saying that. But I say all of this so you can now understand pH. So hopefully pH now is a lot more than what you are just putting a sample in your meter and pushing a button. You understand what that means. And there is a vast difference so now you can use that knowledge to better understand every system that you are responsible for. Now that we've had a refresher on pH, let's go ahead and bring alkalinity into the equation. So if you can, go ahead and visualize that 0 to 14 scale. Now at a pH below 4.3, alkalinity does not exist. We have free mineral acids and carbon dioxide, and this is where we get our carbonic acid. Carbonic acid is two hydrogens, one carbon, and three oxygens. And if you test a boiler condensate line and it's 4.3 or below, be very concerned. You'll get a condition called condensate grooving, and this is a type of corrosion that looks like an inchworm ate away the bottom of the pipe. Why only the bottom? Well, gravity, that's where the water is in a condensate line, so you're only going to get condensate grooving in the very bottom. If you see any anomalies on the upper part of the pipe, something else is going on there. This is when you want to add a buffering agent to increase the pH in the condensate lines because if we increase the pH, we now eliminate the ability of carbonic acid to form. Now, above 4.3, this is where we get bicarbonate alkalinity. Now, remember, that's one hydrogen, one carbon, and three oxygens. And then above 8.3, we will find carbonate alkalinity. This is two hydrogens, one carbon, and three oxygens. And above 10.3, that's where our hydroxyl alkalinity is forming, and that's our OH. Now, how does all this information help us? Well, I think it speeds me up in my ability to interpret my test so I can only run the test that I need to run and not waste my time with things that I'm not going to find. So what do I actually mean by that? So using a pH meter, we can quickly determine which alkalinity that we should be testing for. Here's an example. If I had a pH of 7.5, I would not bother running hydroxyl alkalinity or carbonate alkalinity. Now let's face it, most of us on a 7.5, probably that's a cooling system, we're not gonna run hydroxyl alkalinity to begin with. But a lot of us only run our alkalinity test, specifically our cooling water total alkalinity test, based on the directions. Now, those directions state that we are going to start our titration method by adding phenolphthalein. And I promise you, at a pH of 7.5, it is going to stay clear. And that's telling us that all of that alkalinity is going to be in the bicarbonate form. So why 
put that in there. It's not telling us anything. So we can start with the other juice that's there. That's the bicarbonate test. And we'll get into exactly what all of that is in a moment. And we can just start with that. And that will eliminate a whole step, speeding us up because we know what our pH is and we can run our test more efficient. So with that, we can save a lot of time by only running bicarbonate alkalinity or M alkalinity. Now I mentioned carbonate alkalinity earlier, that might be called P alkalinity, but more on those later. And since I only have bicarbonate alkalinity, that's the same thing as my total alkalinity. And typically, we just record that and we are good to go. And I just saved a whole part of that procedure. So if we didn't know that, we would have wasted time. We would have wasted reagent. Now, I typically don't mind wasting reagent, especially if I'm trying to learn something. So what I mean by that, if you are curious, go ahead and try testing for something and try to figure out what will happen if you do this or that. And if you have a hypothesis and you think you know what is going to happen and why it's going to happen and you go ahead and run that test, you are learning. So feel free to do that. Feel free to try to figure out what's going on in your systems and how all of your tests work based on what you think you are going to get when you finish running those tests. But if you already know, don't run the tests that you don't have to run. That's just going to waste time and reagent. Like I said, reagent's relatively inexpensive, but the time you have is the most valuable resource. You are never going to get that back. Now, let's talk about two of the items that I just mentioned, and that was P and M alkalinity. Now, here's the deal. In industrial water treatment, it is very easy to get confused. We have multiple names for everything. So here's what I want you to do. I always want you to ask yourself, where did that name come from? And is that name the same thing as something else I might already know? And chances are it is, and we just have 15 different names for the exact same thing. I don't know why our industry does that, but trust me, we do. And one of those is P-alkalinity. So if we say P-alkalinity is the exact same thing as carbonate alkalinity. Now, why do we call it P? Well, it's because of the reagent that we use in the titration. That is phenolphthalein. That is the reagent that will turn pink if we have a pH above 8.3. Now, what is the first letter of phenolphthalein? Well, it starts with P, so there you go. That's where we get our P-alkalinity. So P-alkalinity is the exact same thing as saying carbonate alkalinity. Well, let's move to M-alkalinity, and we get that name from methyl orange. And I'm willing to bet there's nobody in this audience that's using methyl orange on a regular basis. They're using probably a more easy titration method, but M 
methyl, the first letter of that reagent, is how we get the exact same name for bicarbonate alkalinity. Now, methyl orange changes colors in a pH range between 4.4 and 6.3, and typically you will use a color wheel or comparator box to determine what the alkalinity is based on the shade of color that that methyl orange will get you. And a lot of the reagents that I've seen will combine bromyl thymol blue, which tests between a pH of 6 to 7.6, and that combination will be all on one color wheel or comparator box. Now, this is an older style test. You might see this in some cases, but in most cases, I'm willing to bet you're probably using the titration method. So there you go. That's where bicarbonate gets its name M from the methyl orange and phenolphthalein carbonate alkalinity gets its name P from the first letter in phenolphthalein. So let's actually talk about testing. We've been dancing around testing this entire explanation. So when we look at testing, most of us use the titration method. And there is a whole host of different reagents that we can use, but the most common combination of reagents that most of us use for alkalinity is a combination of phenolphthalein and bromyl cresyl green thymol red and sulfuric acid. So if you were to look at your total alkalinity test, most likely those are the reagents that you are using. And by knowing what the pH is, we might be able to eliminate putting the phenolphthalein in. Like I said, if we had a 7.5, we know phenolphthalein is only going to turn peak at a pH of 8.3 or above. And if it doesn't turn pink, that means we have no carbonate alkalinity in the system. Now, here's the thing. Maybe your meter says that the pH sample is 8.5 and you put some phenolphthalein in your meter and it doesn't turn pink. Well, I'm here to tell you that sample is not a pH of 8.5. Phenolphthalein does not know how to lie. Its only purpose in life is to turn pink at a pH of 8.3 or above now your meter, on the other hand, it will lie to you whenever it is not taken care of well. So make sure you have a happy meter. How do you have a happy meter? Make sure it stays clean. Clean it properly. Make sure you're not bending anything as you're cleaning it. And you want to make sure that that little glass cell not only stays clean, but it stays hydrated. As those probes are used, they start to leach out the juice that is inside that they need. We can talk more about that, but that's another show. And you want to make sure that that meter has the proper juice on the outside to keep the inside of the juice inside that glass nice and happy. Now, that being said, you do not want to use pH 4 buffer because that contains a dye to let you know it's pH 4 buffer. And that dye will actually migrate into that glass and that will mess up the internal juice. So don't do that. Make sure you're buying electrode storage solution and make sure your meter stays clean and you will have a nice happy probe for a very long time 
The other thing that you want to do is calibrate your meter on a regular basis. So typically you calibrate your meter with a 7 pH standard, a 4 standard, and a 10 standard. And I do this at a minimum of every single week after I clean my meter. And I clean my meter weekly unless I have kind of a gnarly sample. And then in between every test, I rinse it out thoroughly. And then I store it in the solution that we just mentioned. So make sure you're taking care of your meter. And if you take care of your meter, your meter will be happy and it will take care of you and you will be able to trust your meter. Now, if you're thinking, I can't remember the last time I have calibrated my meter, you probably need to calibrate it. My advice is you do it minimum once a week. And every time that you reach for that meter, you know it's clean, you know it's hydrated, you know it's calibrated, and it is ready to go. And that is going to serve you very well in this industry. But if you're ever out there and you get a pH that is below 8.3 and the phenol phthalene turns pink, you know your meter is incorrect. We can say the inverse as well. If uh, your meter says it's higher than 8.3 and it doesn't turn pink, phenolphthalein does not know how to lie. Unfortunately, your meter does. I test with phenolphthalein every time I don't trust my meter, even if I'm not testing alkalinity. So here's a trick a lot of us can benefit from. And I think most of us have had the opportunity where we are cleaning out the piping of a new system before they go online. And typically we use a high alkalinity cleaner. And after that cleaner is circulated through the system for the required amount of time, a lot of us will ask the customer, since they are on site, to start the system flush so we can turn over that system water. And when we arrive, the system is nice and flushed out and we are able to put in our corrosion inhibitor. Well, I'm willing to bet that more often than not, when you get there, that system is not flushed the way you had hoped and you have to return at a later date because the system still has cleaner in it. Well, here's something that I do. I give them a bottle of phenolphthalein and I find a white styrofoam coffee cup. And what I do is I tell them to, after the system has flushed for so long, go ahead and take a sample. One, it should be clear, and the white coffee cup helps with that. Two, I ask them to put a couple of drops of phenolphthalein in that sample, and the white coffee cup helps with that as well. And if it turns pink, they need to continue to flush. If it turns clear, please call me and I will come out and put the inhibitor in. I cannot tell you how many times that has saved me and it will save you and it will make sure that you are not wasting the time you do not have to waste and probably save you a couple of tanks of gas. So with that, let's go back to our testing methods. If you're using the method we were just talking about, this is the titration method, please be sure to clean all of your testing apparatus every single time you finish running the test. 
Now you wanna clean those with DI water because that way it doesn't have any alkalinity in that. You never want to fear that you are testing the last system you just tested because we have dirty testware. So make sure you start out with clean testware you rinse it after every use. And yes, I clean all my testware each and every week. So I'm starting out each Monday with clean testware. And we have a special dishwasher here that we clean all of our labware with. And of course, we use phosphate-free soap to make sure that we're not going to add that into our testing situation. And we actually have a DI resin right before our dishwasher so we can change that over and we can rinse with just water. And that way we don't have to worry about anything in our testing vials that we might test for later. And yes, as you would think, we never get water spots and those come out squeaky clean. So maybe you can set something like that up in your lab. But the point is you don't need all of that. You just need to make sure that everything is clean. You can do that with a test tube brush and some phosphate free soap and make sure that everything is rinsed out well and it's dried and you're keeping that in your test kit. And all of that to say, assuming that we did all of that cleaning, make sure when you go to get your sample that you are rinsing your testing vial three times. Why three times? Well, I've always been taught that a good chemist always rinses at least three times. And that ensures that maybe you had a little bit of DI water or something in that vial that now you've rinsed out that DI water because that's going to dilute the sample that you're getting ready to test. And after three times, the only thing that's left in there is the sample that you are getting ready to test for. That's called triple rinsing, and that will ensure that you have the best representative sample of that system. So with all of that, let's go ahead and run the test. And you're going to do that as directed by your manufacturer. And when you're done doing that titration, you're going to have to apply your multiplier. Yes, that's right. I said multiplier. What is a multiplier? Well, a multiplier takes into the equation that they're all different sorts of sulfuric acid out there. And typically that's what's used in this alkalinity titration test is sulfuric acid. And depending on the concentration, you have a multiplier that you are going to have to multiply whatever the answer you got to. And that's going to be how many drops you got when the color change happened. Now, here's a mistake a lot of people make they will simply assume that their company keeps sending them the exact same acid concentration and they never look at that. So please don't assume that. Please verify that. It's very possible that you could have a different concentration of sulfuric acid than you think in your alkalinity test kit and your answers are not correct. Now, that's a really easy thing to correct for. You just change your multiplier and I promise if you look at the directions of your titration test, it will have all of those multipliers listed. So remember, always check before you titrate. And that is the titration method. Now, other methods include the colorimetric method, 
And we touched a little bit on that earlier. And this is where you've got a comparator wheel or some sort of box that has different colors in it. And you're comparing your sample to what the wheel or the color comparators match up to. And then you're simply just recording whatever that color is on that comparator. The next one are automated versions of these. So you might find the, a titration method where it's automated. And there are lots of these are, are coming out. They're very popular. I almost debated not even mentioning this, but I remember it from chemistry class. So this is the grand plot method. And this includes a titration uh, with an acid and a pH endpoint. And you are recording the different pH points during the titration. And you're plotting those on a graph versus pH and the acid that you added. And then where the two intersection points are, that's where you can determine alkalinity. I can't ever imagine a field use for this, but I did want to mention it because, hey, I learned it in chemistry. I wanted to use it for something. Also, another method are ion-selective electrodes, and these can be used for alkalinity testing as well. Yes, they're more sophisticated. And what does that mean? Well, that means they are more expensive. Now, here's the thing. We have so many wonderful suppliers of test kit reagents in our organization, in our industry. So with that, I encourage you to have conversations with them. Most likely, they're going to point you to the titration method that we talked about. This is the one that I've been using for years. It's relatively inexpensive. It's one that I trust. It's one that is easy to use, and it is very repeatable. But if you want to get fancier, there is fancier out there, and I know all of these great representatives would love to talk to you about that. I always go with what I can count on and what I can afford. So I hope all of this has helped you understand alkalinity a little bit better. Before we sign off, here's some quick takeaways. pH is a measure of the hydrogen ion, and it is on a scale of 0 to 14. Alkalinity is the water's capacity to resist changes in pH when acid is added, and we call that buffering. Alkalinity can combine with calcium to form calcium carbonate. Another word for this is scale, and that's why you should always be testing alkalinity and calcium. But unfortunately, that is another show. Generally speaking, water with low alkalinity tends to be more aggressive when it comes to being corrosive. And water with a higher alkalinity tends to be more scale forming. But after saying all that, I have to say this, water is called the universal solvent. So we don't say water is either corrosive or scaling. All water is corrosive, but not all water is scaling. And when we find a water that has a higher alkalinity, Normally, that means that we're going to have more of a scaling tendency. When we find a water with a lower alkalinity, more often than not, that means we're going to have a lower scaling tendency. And because there's less stuff that's dissolved in the water, and that's what water loves to do, it's going to look for things to dissolve. And that's why we say that that water is more corrosive. 
So now you know a little bit more about alkalinity, and it's my hope that you make some educated guesses of what you think the alkalinity will be based on your pH, and then run all the different alkalinity tests to verify what you learned here on this Pinks and Blues podcast. I also hope you look up more information about alkalinity. It's a good idea to go ahead and read your test kit procedures and look at the interferences that go along with those procedures because those will teach you a lot about your test. And more than anything else, I hope you have fun because now you understand a little bit more about alkalinity. And I hope every time you run that test, you're now processing everything that you know and you know what that test is reacting to. I want to thank all the people that wrote in to help me create this episode. And if you have something you want us to explore on Scaling Up H2O, please go to scalinguph2o.com, go over to our show ideas page and let us know what that is. So this was a fun show for me to put together. And speaking of fun, we always have fun with our friend James McDonald. And here is a brand new periodic water table with James. Hello and welcome to the periodic water table with James where we think and learn about water chemistry drop by drop. Please use your week to search online, ask your colleagues, or even pick up a book to learn more about each week's periodic water table topic. If you do, at the end of the year, you'll be 52 water chemistry smarter. So let's raise the water table of knowledge together and get started. Today's topic is... Isothiazolin, or isothiazolinone. Is there a singular molecular formula, or is there a family of chemistries available? What is isothiazolin used for? Can you test for it? Does pH have an impact? What dosages are recommended? What microorganisms is it effective against? How much contact time is required for isothiazolin to be effective? What is the mode of action for isothiazolin? What systems is it used in? Is isothiazolin ever blended with anything else? Remember, knowledge is power, and taking the time to learn more about water chemistry each week will help make you a force to be reckoned with. Be sure to post what you learned to social media and tag it with hashtag watertable23 and hashtag scalinguph2o. I look forward to learning more from you. Thank you, James, and thank you out there in the Scaling Up Nation. A quick ask I have for all of you, if you don't mind, as you're listening to this podcast, go ahead and review this podcast on your favorite podcast player. That really helps us with our searchability when people are trying to find information about industrial water treatment. And that, of course, helps us get more people within the Scaling Up Nation. And more people in the Scaling Up Nation means that we are getting more and more people that help us with this show and help us raise the bar in the industrial water treatment industry. Have a great week, folks, and we'll have a brand new show for you next Friday. 
Do you wish you had your own private tutor to help you study for the Certified Water Technologist examination? Well, now you do. So many of you have asked me to help you with the mock CWT examination, and I've done that very thing. If you go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash CWT prep, Again, that's scalinguph2o.com forward slash CWT prep. You will see that I've created a course and I tell you everything I know about each one of those mock questions. It's my hope that that helps give you the confidence you need to sign up to get certified today.